Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good evening. I'm really excited about this evening's conversation. Uh, I think it's incredibly timely and important. For those of you, I guess, must be a very small number since you actually are here, uh, are not familiar with Yasha Munk, who we'll be talking to tonight. Um, he is one of the last remaining liberals in the US. Uh, he, he is occupying what is an increasingly slender central ground, uh, where he at once is critical of progressive overreach on the left, but is also absolutely insistent that he will not become a reactionary or a right-winger, uh, which means that everyone attacks him all the time. Um, so it'll, it, we're going to get into some of that, and I, I really look forward to that. So welcome, Yasha. Thank you so much. I feel like we should start by talking about what's going on in Israel. Um, I know that you have strong views on that, but also because it serves as such a stark counterexample to what the liberal idyll should look like. What have been your thoughts in the last 48 hours? Well, I mean, since of framing it around the question of liberalism, uh, I think one of the things it shows is both what an achievement uh, tolerant, prosperous liberal societies are, how easily we take for granted for whatever the real flaws are of the United Kingdom and the United States and other democracies in the world, what we've achieved here. And then, of course, that we mustn't be naive about what it entails to defend those tolerant and prosperous societies against uh, extremists and theocrats uh, who want to destroy that. Um, the other thought I've had over the last days, and you know, the stakes here are higher than media criticism, uh, is you know how many people have missed the moral import of this moment. Um, the Israel-Palestine conflict is incredibly complicated, and I certainly think that uh, Israel is not without its uh, blame or without its faults in all kinds of ways. But to react to uh, the murder of hundreds of innocent people uh, at a music festival, to the kidnapping of an elderly Holocaust survivors and of some toddlers, uh, of an indiscriminate slaughter of civilians um, by the kind of both sides rhetoric we've seen not just from some parts of the far left, uh, but also from many mainstream newspapers, including the New York Times and the Washington Post, is just shameful. So you mean referring to them as militants instead of terrorists or talking about how there's been difficulties on both sides and not taking a clear moral stance? Yeah, I, I, there was a really interesting contrast yesterday evening uh, where the German newspapers of all countries uh, were leading with hundreds dead at the music festival with the awful ransom that Hamas now has and the roughly 100 kidnapped people uh, of whom they have control. Um, and at the time, uh, you know, the, the New York Times headline was something like, uh, uh, you know, Israel fights back against militants. Um, and the Washington Post, in, in, in part, had both sides reeling. Um, you know, after 9-11, uh, many papers around the world, including Britain, put the faces of 9-11 victims on the front page. We've seen nothing like that in the United States or in Britain. Uh, and I think that that is uh, 
a, a very strange moral standard. Now, by the way, if Israel goes on to commit atrocities in Gaza, which is by no means foreordained, but which is certainly imaginable, uh, we should be just as outraged by those atrocities and portray the victims of that as well. But right now, what we have is one of the worst terror attacks, one of the worst forms of slaughter of civilians we have seen in a long time. And I don't think, and I think if you, ironically, despite the fact that I don't especially like what I still insist on calling Twitter these days, um, and I think it generally has become a worse platform in all kinds of ways. If you spend five minutes on Twitter this weekend, you got a sense of that. We spent five minutes looking at the headlines of mainstream newspapers. You did not get a sense of that. No? That's a real, uh, a real journalistic failing. This is Yasha's new book. It's called The Identity Trap, and we will be selling some uh, in the interval and afterwards, so do pick one up. Um, a story of ideas and power in our time, and it mainly focuses on the US and what's been happening over there with the rise of identity politics and people bringing back to the surface as if it's the most important thing ever, identity issues such as race, and most particularly that probably gets the most space in, in this book, instead of what you perceive to be the ideal, which is those mattering as, as little as possible and us focusing on our universal shared ideas. So just before we leave Israel as an example behind, it strikes me that that's a place now where there are no universal values that could reasonably apply to both of those communities. This is now a sectarian conflict, different groups laying claim to the same small parcel of land. And the ideas that you talk about in this book of tolerance and due process, treating people as individuals, trying to forget about you know, their ethnicity or tribe, almost just aren't relevant in that kind of context. Well, uh, I don't know, a couple of things. I mean, one is I, I'd quibble a little bit with the characterization of the book you just gave, and we'll, we'll get into yeah. that. Uh, we'll quibble for 45 minutes. That uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, I think that, you know, I don't think right now there is the preconditions for a great liberal uh, state in which uh, uh, Israelis and Palestinians live side by side as part of the same state. I think that's naive. Um, but I certainly think there's universal principles that should be implied. And one of those is what uh, uh, lawyers and philosophers know as just in bello, as the law that is governing the conduct of war. Uh, and precisely one of the things that I found so shocking over the last days is the failure to distinguish uh, between uh, forms of military action that are targeted at military targets and that may at times result in civilian loss of life that you're trying to minimize as far as you can and the deliberate and indiscriminate slaughter of civilians. So I think even in situations of war and of conflict, we have certain kinds of universal standards of behavior that we precisely have to try and uh, uh, enforce. Uh, if, if we are to uh, stop conflicts from uh, becoming even more bloody than, than, than they need to be. You mentioned the preconditions of a liberal society. What do you think they are? Well, one of the preconditions is that you have to be able to see each other as parts of the same uh, politics, parts of the same state. Um, you know, that is what's absent in the case of Israelis and Palestinians. We don't have a history of compatriots, and I think it's unrealistic given uh, the kind of scenes we've seen on uh, Twitter in the last days, but that is going to happen anytime soon. But, but that's important when it comes to a place like Britain or the United States. I think one of the key tasks in a deeply ethnically and religiously diverse society is to make sure that people have space where they can be you know, have freedom of religion, which is a core liberal value, where there can be freedom of association, where people can continue to be proud of the cultural heritage, of their origin, and all of that is fine. In that sense, I don't, I'm not anti-identity in the sense that I want everybody in a melting pot kind of way to pretend they don't have roots or origins. Uh, but at the same time, we need to make sure that they see each other sufficiently as citizens of the same state, as people who might not have certain things in common because we have different identities in certain important ways, but it has something else important in common because you're both uh, citizens of the United States, or as you like to say here, subjects of uh, the crown. His Majesty. Uh, yes, indeed. 
it still doesn't trip, trip, trip over time of his majesty, not her majesty. Um, uh, and that's a really important thing that our institutions and our joint norms have to actually enforce. That's one of the reasons, I know there's a kind of a hard pivot, but it's one of the reasons why I'm concerned about some of the fashionable pedagogical trends that have become very influential in places like the United States, where you now have teachers, uh, especially at many elite private schools, but at many schools throughout the country, coming to third grade, second grade, first grade classrooms and telling kids, if you're black, you go over there, and if you're Latino, you go over there, and if you're Asian American, you go over there, and if you're white, you go over there. You have organizations like Embrace Race, one of the most influential uh, nonprofits advising schools on DEI efforts, on diversity, excellence, and inclusion efforts, saying that the key task of a progressive education is to teach students to think of themselves, first and foremost, as racial beings. You have places like Bank Street School on the Upper West Side of Manhattan trying to get uh, the white students to quote, quote, own their European heritage and own the whiteness. Now, the idea is that this should allow um, uh, students who belong to minority groups to sort of fight back against injustices and induce white students to disown their white privilege and become great anti-racist activists. But when you look at how identitarian conflicts work out in places like Israel or Palestine, or when you look at basic social psychological studies, um, what they show is that how we define ourselves is malleable. Um, well, that depends on context. That human beings throughout history have defined themselves in all kinds of different ways. That once you've defined yourself as part of the same group and think of those people over there as part of another group, you're going to sometimes be capable of great courage and altruism towards members who are in-group, but you're going to often treat with disregard or horrific violence members of the out-group. And the idea that encouraging young Americans or young Britons to think of themselves first and foremost as racial beings, where that uh, trumps any other sense of common identity they might have, sets us up for the worst kind of zero-sum conflict between different ethnic groups. And I particularly worry about those white kids um, not because it might be uncomfortable when they're separated out into a white group. Being uncomfortable as part of your education is perfectly fine. Thank you very much sometimes. But because they're much more likely to end up as, as, as racists or white supremacists than they are as these you know, great Ibram X. Kendi-style uh, anti-racists. So what is your diagnosis for why those issues like race, those dividing lines, have come back with such force? Uh, you trace the sort of intellectual academic history of some of these ideas and how they progressed very convincingly I think here but it, it still to me leaves open the question why does a functioning tolerant more integrated society move to becoming less so why is it that on both the left and the right but here we're really talking about the progressive left why is it that we've they found it necessary to rediscover race well I'll say two things about it one is that um, I actually think that on many metrics, uh, we have continued to improve. Um, certainly in the United States on race, uh, I mean, in the 1960s, uh, less than 5% of Americans thought that uh, uh, interracial marriage was morally acceptable. Less than 5% of Americans in the 1960s. Um, now less than 5% of Americans think that it's morally unacceptable. Um, uh, and we've gone from you know, a vanishingly small number of children having parents of different uh, ethnic groups uh, to six, seven times more than we did 20 years ago to a very large percentage of American newborns having those roots. And that's just one indication of ways in which in many ways American society has become much more racially fluid and has seen much more cooperation and friendship along those kinds of racial groups. So it's really a question about um, uh, the intellectual developments on the left, which I trace, which is really based in a fundamental rejection of the kind of universalism that has historically characterized the dominant strains of the left. And I think with the internet and social media. I mean, when you go back to the 1990s, all of the great internet evangelists had this idea that, you know, what's stopping us from talking to interesting people in Nigeria or in Japan is that it's so expensive to interact that calling uh, you know, Lagos or Tokyo would have cost you a fortune every minute uh, in the 1990s. And now that there's going to be costless communication, we'll be able to have this great intercultural exchange. And 
what we found out over the last 30 years is that once you have costless communication paired with the sort of discovery mechanisms of social media where you can tag people and things can go viral and so on, what you actually have is people seeking out those who are as much like them as possible. And that's revealed something rather sobering about human nature. Yeah. So your, your argument with the left, as it were, you've touched on, you also have an argument with strains of the right in this book, in that you, there's the example of some legislation in Florida that you touch on. You mentioned Victor Orban a couple of times. There's the idea that, in what I suspect they would say, in response to this, some of these ideas, there are definite strains in the right that feel they need to fight back on the same terms, take control of those same institutions, and draw a line against the craziness. Why are they wrong to try and do that? Look, so, so just to give you an example of where some of those debates lie, um, you know, I teach, uh, I'm a college professor, I teach uh, some of this material to students. Um, the kids are sort of, sort of all right. I find that uh, most of my students want to think about these topics, are actually open to having real conversations about them, often express a deep gratitude for the first time in the educational trajectories to have had a space where we can engage with these ideas seriously. At the same time, I'm a little bit concerned that the starting point is fully based on this, this novel idea, ideology, not just about race, but about race and gender and sexual orientation that has not just conquered many parts of the left, but fully conquered the American educational system. So it's certainly the kinds of students who end up at you know, elite universities in America have just been taught this as received wisdom since day one. This is just the water they're swimming in. And sometimes I have trouble getting students to talk. And on those occasions, when I've asked them what's going on, I feel like you know, normally there's more debate in the classroom and I don't quite know what's going on. Perhaps I'm doing something wrong. They say, well, you know, X or Y in the class uh, is somebody who's called out their classmates on TikTok or on Instagram in the past and misrepresented things they've said in the dining hall or in a different classroom, and we don't want to take the risk of social ostracism. So there is uh, a real desire to engage, but also a fear of what the consequences might be when you know that somebody in the classroom doesn't like that. Now, I'm talking about all of that because uh, one of the things I do is to have a week about free speech, um, have a week about cultural appropriation. These are all subjects that I discuss in the new book. And uh, I have a rousing defense of free speech. I worry about the concept of cultural appropriation. I think we should not put forms of mutual cultural exchange under a general pole of suspicion. And I assign some of uh, the texts making those points in my class. But because I don't want to indoctrinate my students, I also assign uh, the critiques of free speech, the critiques of cultural appropriation. I trust my students to be smart enough to make up their own minds about it. Now, in the state of Florida, I would not be able to teach those courses at a public college or university, because according to the Stop Woke Act uh, passed by Ron DeSantis and his allies, uh, you cannot teach anything that is classed as identity politics or critical race theory in the state of Florida. So I would not be able to engage my students on these topics, arguing against some of these ideas in that state. So what should they be doing instead? I mean, I think that's the key question here. If you, if you find that some of these ideas are making bad for society, bad for kids, we shouldn't be teaching them, and yet they are so widespread, they're even dominant in, in educational institutions, in corporate institutions. If you think it's an emergency of some kind, how else do you fight back except by taking those kind of more drastic measures? Well, let's take a couple of steps back. I mean, the first point is that part of our fundamental political settlement is that we have principles that regulate our political competition. That what you are allowed to say on the stage or the sofa, I suppose, what I'm allowed to say is not decided by Rishi Sunak and it's not going to be decided by Keir Starmer in a few months. Uh, it is decided by whatever you want to say, right? You can say um, anything you like. Yes, um, or at least it should be like that. I know in Britain it's not always like that, but that's a problem. Um, so I'm a, you know, I, I, 
I live in America and I, I don't think that everything is better in America than in Britain, uh, you know, except for the food and the housing and the weather. Uh, <laughs> many things are better in Britain, but the First Amendment is one of the great things about the United States. And I think we need much more robust protections for free speech here. But that is not just because I care about the great things that come from having free speech. It's about the terrible things that happen when you don't have free speech. And one of those terrible things is that, uh, you know, politics becomes an existential battle in, your, in which your very ability to make your case and to say your, to speak your mind comes to depend on your access to political power. And so there's a very fundamental principle at play here, which is that, you know, trying to legislate what you can and can't say in a university is a fundamental breach of our political settlement. That's the first point. The second point is, but, but I just find it very strange that all of those post-liberals or anti-liberals on, on the right and the left are very naive about how this is going to play out. So on the left, there's all of these people who are used to just arguing about speech codes at Smith College or Harvard University saying, you know, we should, you know, we should get rid of free speech. We should um, make sure that Silicon Valley companies can censor whatever they want. And perhaps we should have governments being able to persecute you for things that uh, are considered offensive as uh, the Merseyside police in Britain uh, claimed during pandemic with big banners saying it is being offensive is an offense. Um, uh, uh, but the left somehow assumes that even for this thing that Britain and the United States are deeply racist, white supremacist, terrible countries, the people who are going to be making those decisions are always miraculously going to be on the side of social justice. That is deeply naive. But I also think it's deeply naive for uh, some of the people, for example, who are sort of these, these, these weird post-liberal integralists who are making the case that we should ditch liberalism for various forms of you know, Catholic theology. I know they're sometimes a little friendly with them here at Unheard. Um, we have they all, somehow, all sorts coming through. These, yeah, also, which is wonderful, which I love about Unheard. Um, but they think that somehow miraculously, even for most Americans and certainly most Britons are not particularly religious and most of them are not Catholic, their moral convictions are going to be legislated from on top if only we get rid of liberalism. I think that is utterly naive as well. So what you would actually have is a society that's completely split in which, uh, you know, uh, at Smith College, I'm not allowed to talk about this book. And at the University of uh, Florida, uh, people aren't allowed to criticize free speech or make the case on the other side. And what I want is uh, uh, the United Kingdom and the United States having lots of spaces where we can all debate with each other and actually express our opinions. And then the last thing of how you fight back well, I think actually I'm a deep down, uh, dyed in the wool, small D Democrat, because unlike so many people today, I believe that most voters are pretty reasonable. They don't always get everything right. Uh, I disagree with voters on all kinds of issues all of the time. But I think most people are decent human beings who are responsive to arguments and who want the world to be a decent place. And so where do you fight back against bad and liberal ideas? In the public sphere, by making the case to the public and to voters. And when you do that, I think you can succeed. That's what you're doing here. That's what you're doing with your uh, Substack, with Persuasion, uh, with your podcast. But it seems fair to observe that you haven't won yet. In fact, the Energy. I haven't lost yet either. <laughs> the, the, it feels like the energy is still, if you, if you were to tot up the sort of illiberal left and the illiberal right, there's more energy there than there is in those people making the kind of arguments you are. And I, I just wonder, is it even feasible to just cry, play fair, everyone, you know, start getting on and being tolerant with each other and then everything will go back to normal, where there's now such a trust deficit and where each side of this kind of culture war is terrified of the other and convinced that it's now an existential battle. You, you can't really, you talk about not legislating from above, you can't tell people to trust each other when they don't. Well, but again, let's take a step back. Uh, you know, in a way, it, it gives us some perspective to have started this conversation with what's going on in Israel right now. Um, 
you know, is a lot of the intellectual energy on the extremes, is some of the political energy on the extremes, absolutely. Um, and it's not particularly fun. <laughs> I've had plenty of really lovely reviews for the book, including in, in the Washington Post and the Spectator and the Telegraph here. But in the United States, I've had sort of a sneering review from the New York Times saying that I'm sort of a terrible, uh, uh, you know, anti-woke uh, warrior and a negative review in the Wall Street Journal saying that I'm in the end just a woke apologist of the left. <laughs> so I, I feel what you're saying. Um, uh, but I think, uh, you know, people are never liberals in the sense that they have deep down liberal convictions or that they're able to explain the sort of grand principles of John Stuart Mill particularly well. But I think people, especially in Britain, have a strong sense of fairness. And I think that sense of fairness is a sense of liberal fairness. When we do liberal things and people get punished for what they say or do in liberal ways, people are quite horrified by that. And on many really important issues, I do think that there is a reasonable majority. Let me give you two examples, one from the United States and one from the United Kingdom. Um, in, in America, uh, no, Democrats think that Republicans don't want to acknowledge the evil of slavery. And Republicans think that Democrats don't want to acknowledge that George Washington and other founding fathers were great men. Uh, and a great study by Moore and Common has shown that that is untrue, that actually a huge majority of Americans, including Republicans, uh, want kids to be taught about the evils of slavery. And a huge majority of Americans, including most Democrats, want to be taught about the great achievements of the founding fathers. And you can believe both of those things at the same time. Similarly, uh, the same organization did a study of uh, opinions about trans issues in the United Kingdom. And you have a clear majority of people in Britain uh, uh, having a lot of compassion for trans people, recognizing that trans people have historically been discriminated against in terrible ways, and that we should allow people to uh, live in accordance with the gender identity that they choose. And at the same time, they, uh, in the majority, have concerns about access to single-sex spaces where uh, biological women are particularly vulnerable. Uh, and they reject uh, the idea of uh, athletes who've gone through male puberty being able to uh, take part in female sports at the highest levels. Um, and so again, you might agree with some of those views, you might disagree with some of those views, but I think that most citizens actually are capable of making fine distinctions and uh, we shouldn't give up on defending uh, that reasonable majority. I love the contrast. We had John Gray here last week. Uh, I think this is a quote. He said, the era of living in tolerant liberal societies has passed into history. Is it your view that, as you put it here, a liberal civilization has passed into history? So liberalism, the, the era of liberalism, the, the era where we live in a negotiated society with strong institutions, tolerance, respect for people we fundamentally disagree with, that is now in the past. Is that your view? Yes, that is my view, and it's not coming back. Something else might come back, something else might emerge, something else which is new, which may bring back or revive or reinvent or uh, some elements of liberalism. I hope that's the case. I hope that there can be something like the practice of tolerance again. That was his conclusion last week, and now we have optimism from Yasha that it's, it's coming back. I mean, by the way, you know, perhaps he turns out to be right, but for now, Britain is a relatively tolerant society, isn't it? I mean, for all of the concerns I have about cancel culture and for all of the concerns I have about various forms of discrimination and all of that, compare Britain today with any society in the history of the world. Compare today with any set of societies outside the, the set of liberal democracies in the world today. Would you rather live here or in any one of those places? And so if for now we're able to sustain, for all of its imperfections, that relative scheme of uh, tolerance, uh, shouldn't we try to fight to preserve it rather than having, you know, very pithy quotes about how we should, uh, you know, may as well give up? Mm. So let me just try and pick a fight with you anyway. Just Please, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't want to get on too well. So is it not the case? Are we getting on? I didn't well, think so. <laughs> this, is get, this is getting on. 
the, in fact, it's your kind of argument, which is you, you talk in the most interesting, I thought, section of this was the, the last few chapters where you talk about making the case for universalism again. And I just wonder what you make of the suggestion that actually a lot of the problems from 2016 onwards, the, the divisions, the populist outrages, etc., have come from an overly naive faith in universalism. And the decades preceding sort of lived the pretense that human beings were all too much the same and were just individuals who would respond rationally to prompts and global rules and all the rest of it. And actually, you can interpret a lot of the political chaos of the last few years as people saying, no, we are different. We, we are, there is a tribal element, whether it's religious or cultural or ethnic. There are things that do divide us that people actually prefer to stay in touch with. And somehow, the, a, a kind of overly devout faith in universalism, people find alienating and inhuman. Well, that's perhaps where my, I said earlier that I would uh, quibble with your characterization <laughs> of a book. And like Chekhov's gun, now uh, I'm, I'm using it in our, our, our battle. Um, uh, again, I like and celebrate the fact that in places like the United Kingdom, like the United States, people have origins in different parts of the world and have some ongoing commitment to some of those cultures. And I certainly think that it is naive um, to be blind to the power of those collective instincts. I've written in, in, in my previous books, as well as this one, about how human beings are groupish yeah. creatures. Um, uh, we have a tendency to uh, think in groups and to prioritize the members of the in-group over the out-group. You know, perhaps your criticism would be fair if you were addressing the 20-year-old version of me uh, who believed that we should get over patriotism and nationalism and all those kinds of things and you know, feel equal uh, duties and regard for everybody in the world. Uh, I still find that a, a sort of charming ideal, but in reality, we've seen over the last 20, 30 years that nationalism is a very powerful force and either we make that useful for us uh, and make that part of what sustains these liberal societies uh, or we're going to end up with worse kinds of people uh, uh, using either subnational tribalism or an exclusive uh, nationalism uh, for their own purposes. So I certainly don't think we should be naive about the role that groups can have and will play in our society. But the question then is, how do we deal with that in concrete terms? And I think the task is to always also create enough sense of fellow belonging above and beyond those subnational tribes that we're able to sustain these genuine schemes of cooperation, that we're able to live together in, in, in peace and prosperity. So where does that put you on an issue like immigration, if I can ask then? For example, Sweden, my mother is Swedish. Now 2 million of the 10 million citizens of Sweden are new arrivals um, in that they they came in the past 10 years. Many of those are from countries like Somalia, Syria, Egypt, Turkey. Um, they are having a very difficult time at the moment. Um, and it feels certainly to a large minority of Swedish voters, and we'll see whether it becomes a majority who are now voting for quite radical parties, that inviting that volume of people in was precisely a kind of overly universalist ideal that has, has, has not worked out and has really damaged the country. What do you say but to I don't, that? What does it mean universalist? I mean, you know, like, like, I wish we'd, we'd be able to get a little bit more into the substance mm -hmm. of a book because there's lots of interesting book and things in the books we haven't really got a chance to talk about. But I don't think that any form of liberal philosophy necessitates uh, open borders. Um, and I think it's absurd to think that it does. Um, on immigration, uh, my sense is that the great majority of citizens in virtually every country, perhaps in every country, understandably want their country to have clear control of its borders and to be able to decide uh, who gets to come in and to make sure that the people who come in don't present a danger and that they share some of the basic values of that society. And then we can have debates about what the right level of immigration is, and that's going to depend in many cases on local circumstances, 
uh, of all sorts. But I think what's interesting is that once you have very clear control over border, uh, a lot of people see the benefits of a healthy level of immigration, particularly when those people uh, are high skilled and uh, already speak some of the language of the country they're immigrating to and so on. Um, but certainly I don't think that wanting to have control over your border is in any way uh, uh, irreconcilable with the principles of liberalism. And I, I don't think any serious liberal philosopher in, in the history of the liberal tradition has, 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 has claimed that it is. So actually, the, well, the final chapter is the case for universalism. So there's a sort of yes, but um, to that universal ideal. This ideology, what I'm analyzing, um, has three main claims. Number one, that the key prism for understanding uh, social reality, for understanding our conversation today, for understanding uh, history and political events, is race, gender, and sexual orientation. But that is the key prism you should always focus on. Somebody like Robin DiAngelo, a very influential diversity trainer and best-selling author, has argued that every time a white person interrupts a black person, they're bringing the entire apparatus of white supremacy to bear on them. Now, that might be true in certain circumstances. But there's going to be lots of other circumstances where that's not true because they're best friends or they're spouses or they're just you know, part of what it is to be equal is to interrupt each other. I know you, you, you have a, a, a desire to drop them right now. I'm very good. <laughs> I'm suppressing uh, it. Thank you. Um, otherwise, there'll be a clear case of Swedish supremacy. Um, <laughs> the, the second claim they make is that the values in the unwritten constitutional settlement in Britain, the values uh, written down in the Declaration of Independence in the Constitution of the United States, aren't what allowed us to make progress towards more just societies historically. They were meant to pull the wool over our eyes. They were meant to perpetuate injustices like racism and sexism. They're the real reasons why our societies remain unjust today. And so therefore, we should reject any form of universal value or neutral rule, including free speech, by making how we treat each other and how the state treats all of us explicitly depend on the kind of group of which we're from. So what is the defense of universalism? It is to counter each of those points, and liberals can do that very convincingly, I think. Mm -hmm. It is to say, number one, but of course race and gender and sexual orientation matter. But so does social class, so does religion, so do the individual tastes and attributes of people. You have to let each situation teach you how to read it, not impose a pre-existing view on it. But number two, those universal values have been how the gay rights movement succeeded, how the civil rights movement succeeded. But Frederick Douglass, recognizing that free speech allowed people to say terribly racist things in his day, called free speech the dread of tyrants because he realized it's also what allowed the weakest in society to make their case for more equal rights. And that therefore the way that we make progress is to recognize where we're hypocritical, recognize where we're not living up to our ideals, but to double down on the goal of living up to those universal values and neutral rules rather than to rip them up. That, I think, is the defense of universalism. I suppose if I had a criticism of this book and maybe the, the project is that it focuses on the easier arguments to win. That most people, I agree, would, would not sign up to a world where cultural exchange is deemed negative and called cultural appropriation or that we should obsess about race and gender to the exclusion of everything else. I agree that most people reject that. I think the harder question is what those, as you'd call them, preconditions to liberal society really are, and whether they are frankly being met now in more and more countries. I think if John Gray was still sitting on this sofa as he was a week ago, he might say that viewed from a larger historical lens, this liberal period where we all managed to get along and play by the same rules was actually a historical anomaly which was supported by a common religion. It was supported by a lot of co common cultural, deeply held values. And when that has begun to dissipate, the whole shooting match begins to fall down. What, what would you say to that challenge that actually the, the problem is more fundamental, that in Western countries now there is not enough binding us together to even want to compromise with each other and become the good liberals you're asking us to be? Well, so this is a question that my last book, A Great Experiment, is really uh, explicitly about, uh, where I argued that we live in deeply ethnically and religiously diverse societies, 
that we sort of slid into without thinking about it very much. Um, and we don't have a good understanding of the rules and the norms we need to sustain them. And this is a great experiment, a historically unprecedented experiment, because we are in new circumstances. We can't assume it's going to work. Uh, and so the great challenge of our age is to make it work. But uh, I also argue that there's no alternative to trying to make it work. If you take seriously what it looked like when diverse societies have fallen apart in the past, it was, uh, you know, to varying degrees, uh, bloodshed and civil war and ethnic cleansing and genocide. And so uh, I think to critique the naivete with which we've maneuvered ourselves into generally challenging situations is perfectly fair. But to sit here and gloat about it and to say, uh, so this is over, um, without being able to offer a workable alternative, I think is deeply cynical. Um, so we should there... try even if it may not succeed, because what else do we have as an option? Well, and, and again, I mean, there's lots of reasons to be concerned about various elements of the United Kingdom today. But look around the world. I think there's a lot that you want to preserve about where you are. And perhaps it's going to be difficult. Perhaps it's going to be genuine challenges in that. But I don't think that throwing out the ideals and a set of rules that have allowed this country to sustain a deeply peaceful and affluent society, um, because we think it might get hard, is the right course of action. And one of the things that all of the post-liberals have in common is that, like Marxists, they can't really tell you what happens after the revolution. You know, it's always easy to hate what you have because, you know, the best societies, and perhaps there I'm a more genuine conservative than John Gray, um, you know, when you look at the human record, the best society you can imagine ever having existed uh, you know, take your pick wherever you think that is today. Perhaps 20 years ago, people would have said Sweden. Perhaps now they no longer would. Perhaps now they'd say Japan or something. It's still pretty damn flawed. There's still lots of things about that society that are not great. Think of some of the worst places on Earth. Uh, and it's, it's really terrible. And so I think sustaining our imperfect societies uh, is a high priority. Trying to make them a little bit better. Trying to make sure that we don't lose what's good about them. It's a really high political priority. And I think the historical record suggests that the basic principles of liberalism is what has allowed us to do that so far. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I just thought, out of genuine, pure, selfish interest, I know we've used the word liberal a lot in this conversation, and everyone thinks it means something different. Just out of interest, however you understand the word, do you self-describe as a liberal? So hands up if you describe yourself as a liberal. Pretty much half, I would say. That's about 50-50, no? I would say maybe just over. And, and put your hands up if you didn't put your hand up the first time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's fewer. That's very interesting. Thank you. We should have really done a start and the end, and we could have seen it. <laughs> yeah, so persuaded anyone. The rise of identity politics, is that filling the vacuum caused by the decline of class politics? Because I think in Europe, for example, we're not, we're not so susceptible, maybe that we change our identity politics, because we're more a class-based politics that we had throughout the 20th century, and it was less so in the United States. Uh, do you think, so it's like Marxism is declining and postmodernism is taking its place? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's clearly an element of this, and... Uh, I talk about this a little bit in the book. So, you know, you start getting the rise of many of these identity-based left-wing movements in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and they sort of carve out a little niche for themselves. But they're clearly minoritarian traditions. And it's after 1989 when Marxism and class-based politics really loses the legitimacy that always came from you know, the communist regimes in the East that... Uh, that can become the majority tradition. And that's clearly one part of it. I think there's a parallel question about the role of religion um, and whether uh, certainly some of the kind of cancel culture is filling a religion-shaped hole, especially in the United States, which is secularized quite recently. And I think there's a strong argument for that as well. Um, you know, I, it always strikes me how the uh, American left, you know, Europeans tend to think of America as kind of a Puritan place in certain ways. And sometimes they think that's because, you know, there's a Bible belt and there's still like seven and a half Americans who say they're not going to have sex before marriage or something. I mean, do anyway. Um, <laughs> but, but really, I think the, the inheritance of Puritanism is about the moral imagination and imaginary. And that's as strong today among the highly educated progressive left in Boston as it is among poorer people in Ohio. They've given uh, up the moral precepts of Puritanism, but the desire to maintain a morally pure community, the instinct towards self-flagellation, and of course the instinct towards purifying the community by uh, casting any suspect people out of it, remains very deeply shaped by that. Are you a religious person? I'm not, no. Um, but but I think one interesting thing, you know, when you're thinking of, you're pushing me on the liberal pieties that we have to give up, where I think here we're using a slightly different concept of liberal, not for philosophical liberalism, but I think as the richest part of the tradition, but the sort of broadly, you know, liberal left worldview, which I certainly inhabited for a very long time and so still have some amount of attraction to. I think one of the naive assumptions was that if only we got rid of religion, people would be more tolerant and so on. <laughs> and I think what we've seen in the United States is that religion there played an important role in giving people social connections and so on. And once we no longer had a stable uh, theology to refer to, they turned these new ideas into a form of religion in ways that are often more damaging. Seems to me that uh, the culture wars are a bit of a destruction from the decline in trust in institutions across the right and the left. I think the only thing which unifies all the different fractions is none of them trust institutions anymore, which to me is much more existential threat than the culture wars themselves. It would be really good to hear your views on that. Um, I half agree with that. So I worry a lot about the loss of trust in institutions. You need functioning institutions and you need some amount of trust in them for us to be able to solve basic problems and to, 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 to have elections decide the outcome of who should be in power, which is something we used to take for granted and can't entirely take for granted anymore in the United States. And you know, But the problem, of course, is that the hold of some genuinely stupid ideas in these mainstream institutions is part of what has driven the lack of trust in them. Um, and so, uh, 
you know, I sometimes get the sense that my friends and colleagues uh, want to tell me, look, uh, it's really important that people trust these institutions. So let's shut up about when they screw up. <laughs> and I think there's a strain among journalists of saying that if only we frame things in the right way, we can sort of hold the shop together, right? Um, you know, this is a little bit of a, of, of a detour, but um, you know, I understand as somebody who worries deeply about the threat of certain, certain forms of right-wing and by the way, left-wing populism to our democratic institutions, why a lot of journalists have started to reconceive of themselves as, you know, every story is written with an eye to, you know, how to save our democratic institutions and make sure that Donald Trump is not re-elected in 2024. But it turns out that doing that is actually a really bad way of defending democracy because people aren't stupid and they recognize that that's what you're doing, right? And so in the same way, we need to figure out how to increase trust in our institutions. But the first step towards that is to argue back loudly and proudly against the bad ideas that now have purchased in these institutions rather than to shut up about those bad ideas because we're fearful that talking about this might somehow make people recognize that some things are going wrong. They're recognizing this whether we write about this in Unheard or whether we write about this in The Atlantic or not. Do you think Donald Trump will be re-elected? I think that's about a 50-50 chance, perhaps a 55-45 chance. But, in favor uh, of? In favor. Could you just expand a little bit more on the interplay between identity politics and this and people seeking power through it, political power, and whether that is a deliberate mechanism for undermining what they loosely called the liberal center? Well, let's distinguish two things, which is, is the ideology opposed to liberalism? And what are the motivations of the people who engage in this form of politics? Right? On the first question, this is loudly and uh, explicitly an anti-liberal tradition. And that's a really important thing to recognize. So a term like critical race theory has become really abused because some people on the right generally say, you know, it's critical race theory if you want to say a negative word about the empire or something like that, um, or about, you know, teaching kids about slavery in the American context. But as a result, a lot of the mainstream has said, well, critical race theory, that's just wanting to think critically about the role that race plays in society. What could be wrong about that? And of course, race does play a significant role in our society and inspires genuine injustices. We should absolutely be clear and explicit about that. But when you go back, as I do in the first part of the book, to the thought of the founders of critical race theory, like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, you recognize how explicitly they think of liberals as their enemy, more than conservatives. Um, you know, Derek Bell, who uh, does heroic work helping to desegregate and integrate uh, schools and businesses and other institutions throughout the American South in the 1960s, comes to think of that work in many ways as a mistake. When it comes to agree with segregationist Southern senators who said those civil rights lawyers, they're just trying to impose the integrationist ideals. They don't really care about their clients. That's why his first paper is called Serving Two Masters, where they claim to serve the clients. They're actually serving that ideology. And so he says we need to reject, quote unquote, the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. Once you get to somebody like Kimberly Crenshaw, and there's something I always like to say to more left-leaning audiences, um, she explicitly says that, you know, the basic ideas of uh, Barack Obama are fundamentally at odds with the core assumptions of critical race theory, right? So, um, so intellectually, this is a tradition that is founded on the rejection of Douglas, um, uh, of, of Martin Luther King Jr., and, and in some ways of, 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 of Obama, um, and Frederick Douglass and really the core thinkers that have been dominating in African-American political thought. Now, I think the motivations of people who engage in this kind of politics vary hugely from person to person. I think there are some people who are abusing this politics as an excuse to bully uh, and to punish. And that is, uh, in general, true in the political extremes, that it has a surfeit of people with what psychologists call dark personality triad, and that's part of the phenomenon. But there's also a lot of people who are attracted to these ideas for reasons that are understandable, who think that you know, there's many injustices that they're genuinely horrified by. 
who perhaps don't have a historical perspective to recognize the ways in which we've made progress and who genuinely believe that uh, implementing these ideas is going to lead to a better world. Um, and uh, that's why I think we should argue back in that, in, in argue, argue back claiming the moral high ground in good faith um, because those are people who are persuadable. And uh, some of the most eloquent spokespeople against this ideology used to be true believers in it. People like Ibu Patel, who's an uh, interfaith organizer in the United States, who has, who's Muslim, who has roots in India, and who was really attracted by these ideas in college, but came to see that it allowed you to criticize and to tear down, but not to build. And he wanted to be somebody who plays a positive role in society. He came to be upset by the fact that his son's teachers would ask him to share about what it's like to be a Muslim in America, talking about the victimization they experience, but never about what they actually believe and what they found to be valuable in their ideas. And so I think um, uh, some people are attracted to these ideas for bad reasons, but in arguing against them, we, we, we should address those who, who may have genuine reasons to be attracted to them. Your answer to Freddie in the first half with respect to, I paraphrase, what are we going to do about it? I thought it was a bit of a fallback. I completely agree with you. What most people think is common sense, rationality, liberalism. But you didn't give us a way through. You're the guy who wrote the short march, not the long march, mm-hmm. doing the short march. If, and again, you can, you can criticize, but being clipped, if you've captured academia, if you've captured HR, if you've captured uh, corporate, and if we haven't, in the UK, and you're very knowledgeable about the UK, you, have, you do not have a mainstream political party to vote for that looks anything like your classical liberalism. What are we going to do about it? Patel, individuals, moral crusade, a new political party changing the voting system. Give me something practical. I love the theory. Mm-hmm. Give me something practical. Five-point <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, plan. It, you know, it's interesting... How did those ideas win? Not with a new political party, not with some, you know, grand new law or something like that, but through public debate, um, through influencing how people think, and through gaining a kind of, ironically, this is a postmodern concept, I suppose, discursive hegemony. And so how do we change that again? By convincing people and speaking up and whereas I'm sure many of his people, many of the people in this room do actually uh, speaking our minds rather than being cowed into a form of silence and winning the argument. You know, most people uh, don't have very strongly held beliefs. They're going along with whatever they think is the sensible thing to say, whatever the consensus of a colleague seems to be, whatever the message is that if you say this, you're not going to get into trouble and you're going to get promoted. But that means that you can change what that set of ideas and norms is by making some noise. And that makes that means that it's meaningful. But I think a majority of people in Britain and a majority of people in the United States broadly agree with the set of ideas that I outline in this book and that has been the basis for our conversation today. And I do think that we're starting to see a little bit of pushback in important ways. One small example is that uh, you know, I think one of the most effective popularizers of these ideas and one of the less sophisticated ones uh, is Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, and he was beyond criticism in the United States over the course of the last three years. Um, you know, I know of many friends who had stories criticizing the content of his views or reporting on some of the things he's been doing at a center in Boston University whose stories were killed because it was hard to get from place to places. Well, uh, suddenly the dam broke because he fired a lot of his staff and it turned out that he had promised all kinds of things that he would do with his grants that he never delivered on and so on. And there's a kind of thing that made it easy to push back. Uh, But suddenly, uh, everybody's saying what they have been quietly thinking for three years, right? And that's genuinely changed the tenor of a conversation. So... um, and I often have people come to me and say, look, I want to argue back against this, but I'm so worried about cancel culture and what's going to happen to me. And I understand those concerns. I've reported on some of the people who've been fired for absolutely ridiculous 
absurd things. I understand why people are worried about it, but I think it's important for us not to exaggerate the whole of those mechanisms, the whole of those ideas. Because once we start speaking up, we're actually in the majority. And because I think if you make it clear that you're not nervous about pushing back and you don't behave, behave like a jerk who's just you know throwing out barbs, that you demonstrate that you're motivated by your own vision for how to make society a better place, in most contexts, you can speak up, you can criticize, you can defend these liberal values. And if we all start to do that, I think that'll make a difference. So I guess I am very worried about the way in which I think for the next 20 years, we're going to have a society level confrontation over these ideas and the influence they will have. But I think that's a winnable debate. And in the end, I think it's a debate we will win because there's so many different political and moral and religious traditions from conservatism to socialism and from you know Christianity to Buddhism that find the idea that you're deep down defined by the group into which you happen to be born uh, to be offensive, uh, that we won't all roll over. Thank you for a very stimulating talk. Um, there's lots of questions I could ask. I'm going to ask two, if that's okay. So one is around, is more a macro level, which is around demographics, and that maybe relates to immigration and migration and what we're looking at globally in terms of demographics and the implications in particular for Europe. At the moment, in relation to the pattern of migration or illegal migration and the response to different migrant groups that is being expressed and displayed in the UK, what that says and how as societies, because we need, well, I think we, we do need migration because I work in the NHS and certainly there aren't enough people in it. We've relied very heavily on migration to fill the gap. So what's your response to kind of how societies can manage that? And I think the second point I'd like to make in terms of how to respond is that some of the issues that the progressive left are bringing up are around you know, really significant historic injustices which are still being played out. So in the American context, you've got high levels of incarceration of Afri um, African-American men. So it's not like everything is rosy for these groups. So how can those discussions be had where those um, you know, historical and existing injustices can be addressed in a way that isn't retaliatory or mm -hmm. you know, destructive? Yeah. yeah. So, so you know, on the first question, I think this is a one of the key challenges of the next century, which is that you have uh, fertility below replacement uh, in Britain. You do in the, you know, close to it in the United States, you have it in Western Europe, but you also do in all of East Asia. You also do in the Islamic Republic of Iran. So actually, every industrialized society in the world is not managing to sustain its population level. And by the way, uh, the idea that this is going to be solved by migration uh, falters in part on the fact that that might be a stopgap for 10 or 20 years, but fertility in Africa is going down a lot as well. It's sort of set in later because uh, 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 economic development uh, set in later and um, uh, there's still a lot of people who don't have access to good education and so on. But the curve looks exactly the way it looked in other continents just 20 years later. And so we are approaching not the population explosion that people like Paul Ehrlich warned about in 1968, but a population implosion. Uh, and so I think that we have to think about how as a society we manage to sustain our current level of population through our own policies. So I think that's a separate question from what kind of immigration policy we should we should have. So I mean, your pro-family policy. Do you think we should, do, think we should be incentivizing people to have kids? I'm teaching a course on, on, on the subject next term in part because I want to think through what I, what I think about it. Uh, but yes, I think, broadly speaking, uh, number one, that uh, we should make it cost-neutral to have a child, but it can't be a huge drain on your resources to do something that's very pro-social and helps the entire society for a long time to come. Um, so it shouldn't cost you a lot of money to have a child. Secondly, that we need very different housing policies because a huge part of the problem is that people spend so much money on the housing because of NIMBYist policies and so on. But having that extra child is unsustainable if you want them to be able to have their own rooms and so on and so forth. 
Thirdly, where we probably have to change career trajectories so mm. that there's not this crunch time when you might have children where it's being decided whether you make partner or get tenure or, mm. or, or, or not. So I think there's all kinds of deep changes to our society that we need to accomplish to, to do that. And, 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 and the cost of not doing it is very high economically, it's very high culturally. Um, and by the way, it's very high because of the kind of demographic changes we will get if we don't, including on religious grounds. So, you know, Eric Kaufman has this interesting book, The Religious Shall Inherit the Earth, which argues that at current levels of fertility for the majority population, we're going to have these extreme religious sects that now are a very small percentage of the population grow to 35, 50% of the population very quickly. And that's not a society that's going to sustain peace and tolerance or liberal values, right? <laughs> interesting um, twist. It's the... Um... Yeah. Pro family policy to avoid being overrun by religious people. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, sure. I think that's part of it. Um, I want to respond okay. to the other question as well. Um, so, look, first of all, we obviously have to fight against all forms of discrimination. Um, and, and those persist, those are real. Um, the second thing is that actually universalist welfare state policies can help to rebalance. Uh, or to find disparities between different ethnic groups. So the claim on uh, the people who, by the people who buy into the identity synthesis is that the only way to overcome historical injustices is to make how you're treated explicitly depend on the group you're from, so that historically marginalized groups get these forms of special treatment, right? I think that, uh, that is um, uh, actually wrong. So, you know, we should have policies that help all poor children get out of poverty but make sure that no child, no matter their race, is afraid of not uh, getting dinner, of going to bed hungry tonight. That's a moral principle. But politically speaking, if it's true that members of a particular group are disproportionately likely to experience child poverty, then a universal policy that helps all children who are in need is disproportionately going to help children in that group. And so actually universal welfare policies can help to overcome those historical injustices. Yasha, exactly on time at 8.30 as we promised. Um, I, some, I guess some people will be leaving um, convinced that there is a, a middle way and that they will be having spring in their step after <laughs> having heard you. And some people may be less convinced. Either way, thank you so much everyone for coming. And uh, I, I, can we congratulate ourselves that we are doing our little bit to keep the liberal tradition alive by having these kind of conversations. 